The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. We continue our study of James chapter 4, picking up in verses 11 and 12 this morning. Simply read those two verses for you. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That's verse 1. We won't go all the way back. Let's do 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes your word encourages, sometimes it builds up. Other times it provokes us to think more deeply about things and causes us to consider things in deeper ways than we have before. And other times it just comes at us as an all-out assault on our flesh. This morning is just such a time. This text is one that does such a thing to all of us. Because we don't travel very far down the road in looking into it before we realize that we stand before it and before you guilty. And so we need you, by the work of your Spirit this morning, to take down our defenses, to remove our sort of strategies for evasion and open us up to the reality of our soul before you and the reality of our behavior before you. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are, not as we fancy ourselves. And draw us to repentance and humility before you that you might lift us up We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the things I've become more acquainted with since becoming a member of the United States military has been the kind of weaponry that our nation possesses should we need to go to battle against others. We have remarkable offensive weapons in the storehouse of our nation. We have an array of various kinds of missiles that can do remarkable things from a great distance. We have missiles that can be launched from miles and miles and miles away and be targeted through a window in a home hundreds and hundreds of miles away. They can be sent with great precision and land and do remarkable damage in the precise location where it is desired that they land and do that damage. But the reality is each one of us possesses a weapon of equal power and equal precision. 
our words launch often like missiles. They can be launched from up close or they can be launched from a great distance. They can be launched through a telephone. They can be launched around a dinner table. They can be launched in the context of some sort of a small group in a church. They can be launched in some sort of a public forum. Or they can be launched in a one-on-one conversation between husband and wife, parent and child, friend to friend, believer to believer. Unlike missiles, our words can do damage all along the way, not just at the destination point. Our words, they travel guided sort of by the accuracy and the precision of the grapevine until they land at their place of contact and do the damage intended. It is with our tongues and our words that believers most often and most easily sin. We've all seen sort of the powerful effects that words can have. If you've lived long enough and you've navigated with other people long enough, then you've seen sort of the ramifications of what happens when we launch our words like missiles into the lives of others. You've seen the families that get destroyed. You've seen the marriages that end up wrecked. You've seen the friendships that get ripped apart. You've seen the churches that split, the reputations that are destroyed. Even murder and wars have begun with words launched from people's mouths. It's such a serious problem that James deals with it all throughout this very brief letter to the church to whom he's writing. He says in very vivid language that our tongues are a horrible and horrifying weapon and that we are, in and of ourselves, absolutely unable to control them. They are uncontrollable. It's a struggle for children to control their tongues. Parents do a lot of work in the home, teaching them from a young age how they ought to speak and how they ought not to speak, what kinds of words they should use. And some people spend their whole lives trying to figure out and control without ever having much success, their tongues. There was a tombstone in a graveyard that was discovered once which said this, Beneath this sod, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. It's a funny little tombstone. But it does spark the reality that sometimes, perhaps in every case, we go to our graves still wrestling with controlling what comes out of our mouths. In Scripture, throughout, cover to cover, the tongue is variously described in all sorts of ways. Here are some descriptors that the biblical writers use to describe the tongue. And by the tongue, not the actual organ, but the words that proceed out from it. Words like wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. That's encouraging. James has already had much to say in this letter about the sinful use of our mouths. If you turn a page over, perhaps in your Bible, to chapter 3. He goes on to, he begins that by saying, most of you shouldn't become teachers, not many of you should. 
And he goes on to explain why, because you can't control your mouths. And when you become a teacher, you're going to be uh, more strictly uh, judged for what comes out of it. And he goes on to say, everybody stumbles with their tongue. Whoever, whoever doesn't stumble with their tongue would be a perfect person. He says the tongue is a small member. It boasts great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among members, the members, that means the parts of your body, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Did you know you had something like that inside of you? Every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by man. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So James has talked about this issue before. He said much about how we sinfully use our mouths and the sinful things that come out. And he has given us some instruction on what to do about those things. But he now, in chapter 4, sort of circles back and comes back to that same issue of the tongue again. And he speaks to a particular manifestation of how we use our tongues for evil. In verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. One of the ways that our tongues light fires, one of the ways that our tongues set ablaze other people and other people's lives and cause destruction is by speaking evil of other people. He's going to break down for us in this text really two manifestations of that, the manifestation of slander and that of judgmentalism, and they are really inseparable cousins that go together. We slander people because we judge them previously. We slander people because we have evaluated their lives and we've made judgments about them. And now we speak to others about the judgments we've made about the person whom we've judged. So slander and judgmentalism are sister sins, if you will. And they go together and they're nearly always inseparable. The scriptures often speak to this issue. The psalmist tells us in the Old Testament uh, that it's the wicked who goes around slandering. Psalm 50, verses 19 through 20. You, you give your mouth free reign for evil. This is in the context of a whole description of the wicked. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And the psalmist is simply making the point that slander is the mark of those who are wicked, not the mark of those who are righteous. The writer of Proverbs says something quite similar when he says that that slander and a slanderous tongue is associated with fools. In Proverbs 10, verse 18, he says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips. Whoever utters slander is a fool. flip side of that in Proverbs 11:13 whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps the thing covered that goes about slandering is literally is a talebearer whoever goes about telling tales is a slanderer 
And so the psalmist tells us that the slander is associated with the wicked and not the righteous. And he goes on to tell us in the Proverbs, the, the wisdom writer of Proverbs tells us that slander is the mark of the fool and not the mark of the wise man, which is the contrast of the book. In fact, he says the wise or the trustworthy keep their mouths shut and they refuse to speak about other people negatively. They keep a thing covered up. They don't think it's theirs to reveal. When we flip to the New Testament, Paul speaks to this issue throughout his letters to the churches, particularly to the church in Ephesus, when he gives sort of a blanket sort of a command that covers all of this stuff. When he says in Ephesians 4.29 this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I want you to say that part with me, would you? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. The only thing that should come out, Paul says, is such things that are good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. The stuff that comes out of our mouth ought to be stuff that builds other people up, that gives grace to others. Not stuff that's corrupting, or as other translations say, unwholesome. And he leaves no wiggle room for us to evade, right? He doesn't give us any exceptions. He says, let none of it come out of our mouths. No gossip, no slander, no lying, no stretching the truth, no innuendo, no critical speech, no unkind judgments, none of that. Let none of it come out of your mouth. Jesus ushers a very similar warning in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and verse 37, when Jesus simply says these words, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for what? Every careless word they speak. Let that sink in for just a moment. We'll give an account for every careless word we speak. For by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. That's a pretty sobering statement that Jesus lays out. And it should, it should be enough on the surface right there to give us pause before we speak. But James continues to write and continues to come at this issue because he knows that it is in spite of our hearing what Jesus says in Matthew 12, it is still a very real and eminent problem and a real it's a real and eminent problem in the individual life of the believer and he understands that it is a real and eminent problem in the life of the church as well. The immediate context of James chapter 4 has been that of quarreling and fighting. The first part of James chapter 4 really forms the central piece of a larger block of thought that James has begun back in chapter 3 verse 1 that carries all the way through verse 12 of chapter 4. It's unfortunate that the... That the um, uh, that the editors later put in the chapter break here where they did between chapters 3 and 4 because it's a long block, a flow of thought that goes from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 12. And the central piece of that is this issue of fighting and quarreling because that is sort of the, the immediate manifestation of all of these things that James talks about surrounding that in this particular chapter in this particular text. 
the whole context of James has been about this. He's been making an argument, and it's been a very central argument the whole way through his letter. His central theme, his central argument is this. Faith without works is dead, and it cannot save people. In other words, he's saying to a church that is filled with, at least in his mind, a mixture of genuine believers and those who are fraudulent believers, which is really the case with every local church. There are those who genuinely belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are others who just put on the veneer and play the part, but in reality they don't know Christ. And James is coming right at that issue in this particular church, and he's saying that here's how you divide the line. Here's how the line divides. If you claim to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and possess genuine faith in Him, then it will show up in the way you behave in your life. You will have works that validate your claim. And if your works do not validate your claim, then the reality is probably that your claim is false, that you believe something untrue about yourself. In which case you need to repent and entrust your life to Christ. Your behavior will show whether or not you're real. Genuine faith results in genuine works which validate the genuineness of the claim to faith. And so in this particular church, we had frauds that claimed faith in Christ, yet their consistent behavior was telling a whole other story. Their sinful, wicked, unbelieving hearts were driving all sorts of sinful behaviors that James begins to to speak to us about. They were mistreating the poor. They were showing partiality toward the rich. They were impatient in suffering. They were blaming God for their temptation. They were double-minded with respect to the world. And that was just the beginning of it. When he gets to chapter 3, he begins to give us some very very real and very clear and very proximate problems that were going on. They were using their mouths to destroy one another. They were launching missiles at each other from their mouths. They were setting ablaze each other's lives and each other's reputations. They were doing it in some ways directly, in other ways indirectly. And the context in which much of all of this bubbles up is in the visible fighting and the quarreling that he mentions in the first few verses or the first ten verses of chapter 4. And his argument is this. If your faith was genuine, you wouldn't be fighting and quarreling with each other. If if your faith was genuine, it would be resulting in things like chapter 3, verse 17. It would would be generating in you a purity, a peaceability, a gentleness, an, an openness to reason. You would be full of mercy and good fruit. You'd be impartial and sincere. You would be the kind of people who make peace, but instead, you're fighting and you're quarreling. And it speaks to the nature of your faith. Your contentious spirit, your fighting, your, your judging. It's, it's, it's behavior that, that, that is evident in the lost world all around you. You're no different. And so in verses 11 and 12, James completes that thought altogether by revisiting this issue of how the tongue is used in the midst of fighting and quarreling. And you can bet, you can bet when there's fighting and quarreling, there is always a sinful use of the tongue mixed in. Always. The two go together. In fact, it's a critical component of it. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 20 says this, For lack of wood, get this, the fire goes out. Now we all know that, right? For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. That's a great proverb. 
For lack of wood, a fire goes out. You take away the wood and the fire is gone. Where there is no, where there is no whisperer, you know who the whisperer is, right? That's such a vivid term. It's the person who's going behind the scenes saying, Hey, come here, let me tell you about that guy. Do you know what she did? Did you hear about him? Guess what? Guess what I heard yesterday? You see, the whisperer uses her tongue or his tongue behind the scenes and it keeps the fire of conflict burning. So conflicts are fueled by those who whisper and use their tongues deceitfully. But James here brings us all the way back around to two particular manifestations of a sinful use of the tongue that are evident, apparently, in the conflicts and quarrels that are going on in the life of the church to whom he writes. And they are these issues of evil speech, which is sort of, in this case, sort of the visible manifestation of what's going on. And then this judgmentalism, this judgmental spirit, which is sort of the nasty, hidden root out of which the evil speech is growing. James is going to, just in these two verses, dig even deeper than that. So if you want to look at it like a plant with roots, the plant that you see is the evil speech. And James says underneath that plant that you see, beneath the soil, is a root of judgmentalism. And if you follow those roots even more deeply, you'll find that underneath the judgmentalism are two deeper and more egregious problems. One of those is a lack of love for our brother, and the other is a desire to usurp God, kick him off the throne, and take over his throne. As judge. And that's the flow of his argument in verses 11 and 12. And so he begins by laying out these immediate sins that he condemns. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. This idea that's translated speaks against here is simply the unhelpful repeating of stories about the wrongs and offenses of others. I thought it was a great definition. The unhelpful repeating of stories about the wrongs and offenses of others. It's almost never helpful to repeat stories about the wrongs and offenses of others. That's what it means to speak against somebody. It means to go to somebody else and to unhelpfully speak to them about somebody else's wrongs or somebody else's offenses. Hey, Ligon, let me tell you about Steve. Did you know what he did last week? That's to speak against our brother. And this evil speech that he talks about is a general word that that really can cover a multitude of things. There are at least three things that I think are covered under here. And Jerry Bridges gives us helpful definitions of them all. The first being slander, which I think is what James is carrying mostly in this text. But slander, critical speech, and gossip are, are, are sort of nuanced differences from one another. Slander is making a false statement or a misrepresentation about another person that defames or damages their reputation. That's what slander is. It's making a false statement or a misrepresentation about another person. And, and it's the kind of thing that defames them or damages their reputation. We slander somebody when we go talk to someone else about them and we spread things that are false. They can be uh, overtly false or they can be simple misrepresentations of what they've said or done. Uh, we can slander somebody by just, by just sharing with the other person what we perceive to be the evil they've done to the exclusion of anything else that they've done. 
So we pull the, the negative thing that we dislike about them out of the general context of their life and present it as though that's the only thing that is about them. A slander. And it's intended to destroy and damage the reputation of someone else. Critical speech is related to that. Critical speech is really the negative comments about someone that may actually be true, but doesn't need to be said. I mean, Matt referred to it in our scripture reading and prayer this morning that all of us are sinners, right? You wouldn't have to scratch very deeply below the surface of any of our lives to find some some sinfulness, right? You wouldn't have to dig very hard in my life or yours to find some area where we fall short of the glory of God, right? That that's, that's, wouldn't be hard to prove in any of our lives. It would, in fact, be true of us all. But simply because it's true of us all doesn't mean I need to go talking about it in regards to you, to other people. It may be true that there's something sinful about you. But I have no right to go talk to somebody else about what's sinful about you. That's critical speech. Gossip is a different sort of a thing altogether. Gossip is the spreading of unfavorable information about somebody else, even if it's untrue. It's going out and just intentionally trying to spread stuff, regardless of whether it's true or not. Gossip really becomes the vehicle through which critical speech and slander travel. That's another way of seeing how these things relate. But the issue, I think primarily that James is concerned with here, is that of slander. It's that of slander. It seems to be the, the, the primary use of the term that he uses here. And so the slander is this issue of making a false statement or a misrepresentation about somebody that's intended to damage their, their reputation or to defame them. And what's really going on when somebody is slandering somebody else is something really pretty insidious. What's going on when we slander other people is we are trying to knock them down a notch in order to exalt ourselves a notch. We're trying to, 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 in somebody else's estimation or in somebody else's view or in somebody else's eyes, to take them down a notch or two. And in doing so, we exalt ourselves. We make them look bad in order that we might, in contrast, look good. That's what the slanderer does. We do it often in order to gain some sort of an advantage. In the business world, it's called backstabbing. It's called stomping on somebody else in order for you to climb over the top of them, making them look bad so that you can get ahead of them. One author said this. He says, slander is actually a form of lying by exaggeration. It's a failure to tell the whole story. When we slander, we take selected excerpts of what's going on in a person's life or what they've said or what they've done and we just sort of, we sort of present the edited view edited by our own editing process that makes them most, most usually look the worst and us look the best. Now, what's important to recognize here though is a slanderous tongue always needs a set of receptive ears in order to make the transaction, right? A slanderer needs somebody who will listen to the slander for it to be effective. Slander spreads, like I said a moment ago, sort of on the wings of gossip. And for gossip to flow down the pipeline, there have to be people in the pipeline who are willing to listen to it and to spread it on. 
so slanderous tongue needs a set of receptive ears. And there are some people who always have receptive ears to slander and to gossip. There are some people who love to hear the slander, who love to hear the dirt on somebody else. I call those folks garbage dumps. The reason I call them that is because yes, just yesterday I went to the Beastbury landfill, my dad's truck. We cleaned out the garage. I had a bunch of junk that was useless. It was garbage. And I needed it out of my garage and out of my life. So we loaded up in my dad's truck and we drove up Beast Ferry Road and we pulled into the Beast Ferry landfill. And we rode up a ramp after we waited for 30,000 other people to dump their garbage. And we threw all of that garbage into the dump. Now, incidentally, it never crossed my mind to drive out of uh, Shadow Moss Parkway and turn left on Muirfield and then turn right onto Ligon and Ann Street, just around the corner, and dump all of my garage garbage on their nicely manicured front lawn. It never crossed my mind to do that. Why did it never cross my mind to take the garbage from my garage and dump it on Ligon's front lawn? Because I know Ligon has a new hip and he could probably chase me down now. But the main issue is I know they wouldn't receive my garbage on their lawn. They'd be horribly offended if I did something like that. And they would make it known to me how inappropriate it was of me to dump my trash on their front lawn. I took my trash to a place where it was received. To a place that welcomed it. The same is true with our slander and our critical speech. We, 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 we dump that stuff on, in places where we know it's received. Where we know that there's a sign above that life that says, Open for business. Bring your garbage to me. I want to hear it. And incidentally, we don't take it to the people who we know won't stand for it and won't listen to it and won't pass it along. If you're that kind of a person, a person, I don't mean to insult you by calling you a garbage dump. I, I mean to make an illustration that you need to close down the garbage dump and make it known that you don't accept that stuff on your front lawn. That if somebody has that kind of garbage to bring along, they need to bring it along and pass right on by you and go somewhere where that's accepted, but it's not accepted by you any longer. And incidentally, you should always remember that whoever will gossip to you will also gossip about you. You can count on that part. Dan McCartney says this. He says, Many slanderers probably are unaware that they're spreading falsehood. They believe their negative accusations and censorious remarks are uh, to be reasonably and reasonable and well-founded. And they may even see themselves as having a special calling to inform the world of someone's evil or to preserve the church's purity by excising its less-than-perfect members. I like that quote because it reminds us that within the body of Christ, within the context of the local church, we have the remarkable ability to cover our slander with a spiritual veneer. To whitewash it, to make it look and sound like it's actually pious. We call it defending our faith. We call it exposing false prophets. We call it protecting the flock, when in reality it's nothing but rank slander. In many cases, if not most. 
Alistair Begg says it this way. He says, Every day in a thousand ways we're tempted to make ourselves the center of the universe. One of the ways in which I know I'm the center of the universe is when I think I'm better than everyone else. It helps me to feel much more important when I can pass along a little something that makes someone else look bad. He's right. And that's what the slanderer does. And that's what slander is. He also talks about, covered here, this issue of critical speech, which is simply negative comments about someone that may actually be true but doesn't need to be said. We can, we can issue and launch our critical speech about people behind their backs, but we also often launch critical speech to their face through the use of things like sarcasm and insults and ridicule and harsh words. Those kinds of things are ways we launch critical speech at people directly. Jesus said to Pharisees who did this all the time in Matthew 12, 34 and following, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And the whole point that Jesus is simply trying to make here is simply to say that our words reveal our heart. And when we, our, our, our lives and our mouths are marked by critical speech and slanderous words, the problem isn't the words and of themselves. The problem is we've got a, a sinful, rotten, unrepentant heart that's spewing this kind of junk out critical spirit, a sinful heart that's spilling over out of our mouths. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, it brings us to the other issue, that of judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. Judgmentalism is simply... It's simply the activity by which we evaluate somebody else's life and words and we make a judgment about who they are and what their value is and we make judgments about whether they are sinners or not sinners, valuable, unvaluable, right or wrong, and we cast that judgment as though we are the judge and we are the final authority on everybody and everything. And then we like to tell others our judgment. Now James has already... He's already mentioned this in chapter 2, verse 4, and in the issue of partiality. He says, Have you not then made the distinction among yourselves when you're partial and become judges with evil thoughts? When you show partiality to the rich instead of the poor, you're making a judgment. You're judging one to be valuable and one to be of no value. And you treat them that way. And the problem isn't as bad. The problem is bad that you treat them that way. But worse is that you've made a judgment and you're in no place to judge who's valuable and who's not valuable. So James says judgmentalism is a problem also in the body that he writes. We should mention quickly that James is not talking about a couple of things. He's not saying that we're never to speak the truth about clearly sinful behavior. He's not saying that. And that is what the world takes this issue to mean. But the world's, I mean, like the lost world's favorite verse in the Bible is Jesus saying, Judge not, lest you be judged. They know nothing else in the Bible, but they know that one. And as soon as you come along and you, you start to question something that they're doing, I mean, they, they pull that thing out like a pistol and a sidearm. You know, judge not lest you be judged. Who are you to judge me? You've got no right to judge. Judge not. That's, that's the one they shoot every time. And what they really mean by using it that way is you have no right to evaluate anything that I ever do. 
as though that's what Jesus was articulating in that particular text. It is not at all what Jesus was articulating in that text. The Bible speaks to the issue of clearly sinful behaviors and that we have a responsibility in our own lives and those over whom we have authority and those within the body to address that. And Matthew 18 gives us an entire process by which we're to do that, first privately one-on-one and then escalating if there's no repentance from the sin. But the key word there is clearly sinful behavior. When God's Word speaks to an issue, we stand on it. And He tells us how we're to do that. He's also not saying that the church is supposed to be a free-for-all where everybody does whatever they want to do and there's no accountability. Again, Matthew 18 speaks to that issue. But I will note this, that in Matthew 18, that he speaks to the church as a whole and he does delegate the responsibility of judgment in some matters to the local church and particularly to those who are in leadership in the local church. But he gives a very clear warning in Matthew 18. And that clear warning is that you better pay attention to what you're doing when you issue a judgment because when you do that, you're acting on God's behalf and you better be sure that what you're judging is what God is judging. And so he raises the bar puts a holy fear in those who are delegated that responsibility. James is also not saying that we're never to identify false prophets. In fact, Jesus has said himself, you will know them by their fruits. You can identify, you can make a judgment about a false prophet by clear fruits that are outlined in the text of Scripture. It's not what James is saying. What James is arguing against is another kind of thing, another kind of judgmentalism, another kind of judging which is sinful and rotten and rank. How do you know when you've crossed into that kind of sinful judgmentalism? I'm going to give you a list of a few things. I'm going to just move through them very quickly here. Our judging and our judgmentalism is sinful, number one, when we don't have all the facts. When we don't have all the facts. At least in our legal system, when you go to court and a judge issues a ruling, he issues the ruling after there's been a trial and all the facts have been laid out on the table and evaluated. The judge issues a verdict. But so often, when we judge one another, when we make judgmental decisions about one another, in fact, almost always when we, when we do that about other people, we're doing it with only little pieces and parts of the facts. We never, hardly ever know the whole story. So we judge people without all the facts. We hear a snippet of this. We see a little something in a particular context. We start connecting dots and putting things together in our own minds. We dream up our own narrative. And before long, we've painted a whole picture that we believe to be true. And actually, very little of it is based in any sort of fact. It's all been built in our own imagination. And we've built a judgment. We've determined something about that person based on very little factual information at all. Our judging is also sinful when we judge based on our personal convictions rather than clear biblical truth. So much of what we judge people on is nothing more than our own personal convictions that we insist others acquire for themselves. And when they don't, then we judge them. Spiritual, unspiritual, godly, ungodly, biblical, unbiblical, gospel-centered, not gospel-centered. Christ-loving, not Christ-loving. Orthodox, heretic, and on and on. We often judge people, and our judgments are built on a demand that other people agree with our preferences and our own personal convictions, not things that are clear 
in Scripture. Jerry Bridges writes this, The sin of judgmentalism is one of the most subtle of our respectable sins because it often practices under the guise of being zealous for what's right. It's obvious that within our conservative evangelical circles there are myriads of opinions on everything from theology to conduct to lifestyle and politics. Not only are there multiple opinions, but we usually assume our opinion is correct. That's where our trouble with judgmentalism begins. We equate our opinions with truth. And then we hide our judgmentalism under a cloak of Christian conviction. Our judging is also sinful when we judge others by a different standard than we judge ourselves. That's when our, our, our judgment is sinful. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We have a remarkable ability to see the worst in others and to see the best in ourselves. We have a remarkable desire that's built within our ungodly flesh that we expect and desire to see somebody else's sin exposed while ours are covered up. We see their sin as egregious, but ours really isn't that big of a deal. And so we pass judgment on other people for things that we do ourselves. Our judging is also sinful when we judge motives rather than clear, verifiable behavior. You and I have no way to know the motives of anybody's hearts. No way to know the motives of anyone's heart. The only person who knows the motives of somebody's heart is God Himself. Proverbs 16:2. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. You see, God's the only one who knows how to disclose such things. The only thing I can judge is somebody's visible behavior that I can observe. That's as far as I can go. I have no right to judge their motives because I don't know their motives. And then finally, we sin. Our, our judgmentalism is our judging is sinful when we magnify other sins while minimizing or ignoring our own. That's what Jesus was talking about when he says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? I love that illustration of Jesus because it's hilarious. Even if you're not laughing, I think it's funny. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye while there's a big log waving in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. you know what Jesus is saying? He's saying when you start thinking about going to point out the speck in somebody else's eyes, you need to mind your own business. Go look in the mirror and mind your own life. Go mind your own life. And you work on that. And when you get that worked out, then maybe you can come back and point out the speck. The little speck of dust in somebody else's. Let me wrap this thing up. When we get down to the second part of verse 11, James says, The problem is your slanderous judgmentalism 
But there's a deeper problem. He says in the second part, the one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of a law, but a judge. What is all that judge and law that James is talking about here? What is the law to which he's referring? Well, it's to what he was talking about in James chapter 2, verse 8, where he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. We know that's what he's talking about because in our current text, at the end of it, James changes the, the noun from brothers to neighbor to reflect that. When James says that when you slander or speak against or you judge your brother, what you're actually doing is speaking evil against the law and judging the law, the basis of which says you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That when I go and I slander you and I'm judgmental toward you, I am violating the very basis of the law itself, which is done to love the Lord my God with all, all, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm to love my neighbor as, as, as myself. I'm actually judging the law by saying I can selectively choose what I'm going to obey and then violate whatever else I want to violate. I can violate the law of love in order to point out your sin with my judgmentalism. And what we're actually doing is setting ourselves then above the law and becoming a judge of the law. We're now saying, I am the judge of what's right or wrong. I am the one who's going to determine what is right and what I'm going to obey and what I'm not. And it violates love. There are people within the Christian world today who write and blog and preach and do other things and run around speaking to whoever will listen. And, it's, and then they built their whole ministry against slandering and belittling other people. They built their whole ministry around invading other people's lives and ministries and trying to point out the errors and selectively pulling clips and audio and video and statements and making fun and joking. Slandering, judging other people. And when we do that, whether it be on that sort of a scale or whether we do it individually to other people, we are violating a myriad of scriptures that demand that we love our neighbors as ourselves. We cannot possibly be loving our neighbors as ourselves when we are doing that because none of us would want that to be done to us. Am I right? Scripture has a lot to say about stuff like that. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Love doesn't run around taking some kind of cheap pleasure and pointing out everybody else's sin and talking about it behind the scene. Love takes great pleasure in covering over a multitude of sins and overlooking an offense. Just recently, Billy Graham passed away. There's a lot of news about that. You could see some of this slander and some of this judgmentalism come out if you paid close attention. Uh, there were all sorts of people who had a lot to say, slanderous and accusatory and judgmental towards Billy Graham and his ministry right after his death. Probably can still find a good bit of that online. But one of the stories that caught my attention in the mix of all of that was a story about the former televangelist Jim Baker. He was interviewed 
by a local news channel when he went to pay final respects to Billy Graham as Billy Graham lay in, uh, in view. And he said this to the news reporter who asked why he was there. He said that Billy Graham had showed him remarkable kindness and had visited him in prison. He said, quote, Billy Graham came into my prison when I was there. He wrapped his arms around me when I was a mess. I was cleaning toilets at that moment. And I was at a very low moment in my life. Billy Graham walked in. He threw his arms around me and he said, Jim, I love you. He went on to talk about um, that after he got out of prison before... Uh, Billy Graham's wife, Ruth, had passed away. Uh, that after he got out of prison, the Graham family invited him to come with them to church and sat with him uh, in the local congregation on the Lord's Day, sort of making a, a public statement. He says, and Ruth Graham was so amazing. It took me hours to tell. As I got out of the prison, I was at the Graham home. I was at the church with Ruth Graham. But they represented Jesus Christ to somebody who's, who the world said was fallen and would never, ever preach again. That caught my attention. It caught my attention because the inclination of so many in the Christian world is to kick a man when he's down and to find some sort of a sick pleasure in somebody getting what we've judged to be their comeuppance. Somehow, the critics can say whatever they want to about Billy Graham. They can talk about his methodology and criticize it. They can talk about what he didn't do versus what he did do. But one thing you can never accuse the man of is being unloving and being slanderous. Because the way he treated Jim Baker was the way Christ, I believe, would have treated Jim Baker. And is the way that we should treat one another. We don't take pleasure in somebody else's sin. We don't gloat over their failures. We don't make fun of their sins. The law of love says we do what Billy Graham did. We put our arms around him and we say, first and foremost, you need to know I love you. And I'm for you. And I'm in your corner because you are my brother. To do otherwise, James concludes, is to exalt ourselves to the place of God. That's why James ends that text with saying this. Who are you, O oh man, to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you have the right to judge somebody else? <clears throat> that judgment belongs to the one true judge, the one who can destroy not only your life, but your eternity, or your eternity in hell. Who do you think you are slandering somebody else? Who do you think you are? doing those kinds of things. Who made you God? Because that's what we pretend to be when we slander our brothers and when we judge one another. <clears throat> Listen, there's so much more that could be said about this, but that's enough. 
It's enough. And it needs to be enough in our lives. We need as brothers and sisters in Christ, we only have control over what we do. We can't control other people. But we need to be able to say together this morning that that's enough of that junk in our lives. We're not going to be garbage dumps for other people to do that. We're not going to facilitate it so that it can spread to other people. And we're going to put a fence in front of our mouths and make sure that what comes out of our mouth is true. It's based on verifiable facts. It's not judging somebody else's motives. It builds up. It gives grace. And it's helpful and necessary. If it isn't any of those things, it doesn't need to be said. Simply put, it doesn't need to be said. Some of us this morning are feeling a deep conviction about these things because we know the things that have come out of our mouths. Because we know our natural proclivity toward doing these things. Because we know our sophisticated, pious ways of covering it up and making it sound spiritual. And what we really need to do is what James instructs us a few verses earlier. We need to weep and wail, repent before the Lord, and humble ourselves before the Lord. And it looks like saying, God, forgive me for the way I've used my mouth. God, forgive me for taking authority that belongs only to you. Humble my heart and shut my mouth. And help me to think before I speak. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are hard, hard things. They are hard things. They are hard to come to terms with because we think about how we've spoken to our our spouses. We think about the words that we have launched even at our children perhaps this week. We think about the ways that we navigate when we're with other people and talking about other people. We think about how quickly we are to make judgments about people that we have no right to make. How, how much pleasure we often take in saying something negative about somebody else, something to make ourselves look better. It's a disease that rots our soul and corrupts your church and ruins the testimony of Christ and the world around us. We pray, God, that you would help us to kill that disease in our hearts and in this body. Holy Spirit, you must open our eyes to see it, or we'll always be thinking about somebody else who needs to hear that message. We pray, O oh God, that you would rip open our hearts and expose the reality and draw us to repent and to find forgiveness in Christ who died for these very sins. That he might remake us in this area and give us clean mouths. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.